Underwriting for AutoLine this week, provided by... People are going to have apprehensions about going into the dealership because it's the largest purchase they're going to make in their lifetime next to their house. So they have to figure, can I afford this? True Car gets to the heart of the matter. Within 60 seconds, you're going to find out what the average customer is paying for that car. True Car helps you enjoy the car buying process because you're spending less time negotiating price. You're going to find yourself focusing on what's the right car for you and have a lot of fun with that. Experience a whole new way to buy a car with True Car. From the Auto Line Studio, here is your host, John McElroy. Want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week, where the discussion's all going to be about fuel cells and the hydrogen economy. Could this really be the future for the automotive industry? Let's find out. I've got three experts joining me today, including Chris Hennessy, the vice president of engineering for the engineering consulting group called IAV Automotive. Professor Levi Thompson is with the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan, and Gil Casillo is the Senior Group Manager for Alternative Vehicle and Advanced Vehicle Strategy at Hyundai Motor America. And it's great having three experts like you on AutoLine this week. Thank you. Professor Levi Thompson, let me start with you. And, and I'll start off by saying, man, I, I've been reading and writing about fuel cells for a couple of decades now. In fact, I think I drove my first fuel cell car almost 20 years ago. And everyone's keep, kept on saying, the fuel cell's the future of the auto industry. And, and here we are in 2015, and it, maybe it looks like it's a little bit closer. But my question is, why has it taken so long for this technology to come to the forefront? Well, part of it's the challenges that uh, you're facing. The incumbent is very inexpensive. Whatever uh, is destined to replace it will have to be at least as good and in some cases better. Uh, It can't cost as much. So all of those, I'm a technology person, all of those rolled up um, uh, result in the technology not being ready. So it's not ready in terms of durability, how long it'll last. It's not ready in terms of uh, cost. Uh, They're just... uh, a variety of different reasons why uh, it's not ready. And there's been tremendous progress. Uh, and, and you can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's the, one of the consequences is that you're hearing more about commercialization from Hyundai and uh, Toyota, some of the other uh, companies, GM, and uh, the domestics have been um, involved as well. So just a, a lot of technical issues and, and they result in cost challenges. Chris, how do you see it? And I I should add, IAV, you guys are pretty agnostic. You'll consult on any kind of powertrain or power plant and the like, and even more than just that. But what do you see as the real uh, hurdles that have yet to be overcome to make fuel cells an everyday occurrence for most motorists? I think, you know, I, over the last uh, 15 years, spent time in natural gas, in the battery side of the business, and, and what we see is the, the linchpin is the commercialization. So needing to get a volume base so that we can get uh, piece price costs down, needing to get the infrastructure there to support uh, you know, mass adoption by consumers so that they're not feeling the range anxiety that uh, they talk about in the battery space. And they, there's a, a preponderance in new technology to, to say all or nothing. Um, and so there's a focus on development of Fuel cell has got to replace the entire powertrain of the vehicle and be the solution. And I think what we're seeing now with uh, some of the, the battery technology that was developed and in, in, uh, invested in uh, Michigan um, uh, capital investment over the last 10 years is not, 
not maintaining that all or nothing strategy, having a subsystem level approach where you can have a, a lower battery, uh, meet a price point target, get some of the overall system performance, and, uh, and try and incrementally uh, introduce some of the technology into the powertrain because all or nothing has a, a very uh, uh, hard line from a performance standpoint that some consumers aren't willing to, to, uh, to risk. Uh, and it constrains the market opportunity, and then also from a technology standpoint, it uh, limits the potential range of usage uh, in low temperatures and you know uh, environmental conditions that are outside uh, a median. And so, uh, for me, starting in a, in a lower uh, volume market and allowing it to grow up and mature in a subsystem level would help uh, actually bring a lot of the technologies that are in, in incubation phase forward in a, in a more uh, expedient manner. Gil Hyundai is now offering a fuel cell vehicle, right. almost really on a test basis, but you're putting them in the hands of real life real consumers. consumers. That's right. So what were some of the things that led to a breakthrough enabling Hyundai to be able to do that? Well, I think everything that's been said is you know, correct. There's a lot of moving pieces when it comes to fuel cell technology, because it's not just the vehicle itself, it's the infrastructure, right? Finding a place to fuel it. And recently, there's been a lot of action taking place, especially in California, to put infrastructure in place, which is kind of now alleviating this whole chicken and egg issue, uh, which is why you know, Hyundai decided and took the step to, to introduce a vehicle. Uh, actually, in terms of uh, development timing, Hyundai um, first produced its first um, in-house stack in 2006, so less than you know, nine years ago. We're already in the third generation, and it's a stack that we think is ready for prime time in terms of durability, in terms of performance and such. Um, but really, it, like we're saying, it's got to start somewhere. And just like there was a time when gasoline and electric vehicles were competing against each other, gasoline won out because it had better performance and better characteristics. Even though there was no infrastructure, I think uh, fuel cells kind of starting kind of in that same area where once the infrastructure is, uh, moves out and is more available, I think that's where I think consumers will see the, the benefits of fuel cell technology, at least relative to other zero emission technologies. Levi, is that going to be enough, though? We, we see demonstration projects, notably in California, in this mm -hmm. country. Germany is doing some stuff. Japan seems to be off to the races with this. But these are largely demonstration projects. Can we really scale up an infrastructure to enable fuel cell cars? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's done. If you look at uh, new technologies, that's the way it happens. It's uh, conceived, there's some demonstration, and you work out all the bugs, and then you go to, if, it, if it's ready, you go to full deployment. And so I think with fuel cells, um, you know, I think about the work we do in labs. Uh, it, it's under a relatively narrow window of conditions that are somewhat representative of what the real world is like, but not really. So a day like today, if you were to take a fuel cell car outside, and we should let the audience something. know yeah. it's freezing cold out there and there's piles of snow, right? There's piles of snow. There are all kinds of environmental issues that you would have to deal with. And so trying to understand how that technology interacts with, with the environment that it's in uh, is an important part of getting it to commercial product. And some of that work is demonstration, you know, getting a couple hundred cars out on the road just to see how they perform. The consumer will also uh, become more familiar with it. A lot of people are nervous about using hydrogen. And, uh, you know, when you look at it from a scientific perspective, it's a no-brainer. It makes a lot of sense. When you look at it as a consumer, I have my, my children in the car, I worry. 
Actually, let me, let me say that another way. <laughs> I, I don't worry because it's actually a very safe technology. But if you don't know, if you're ignorant about it, then uh, you start to listen to what you hear, um, you know, in the public uh, media and just things get construed and distorted. And I, I think you need those demonstrations just to show that it is a safe, reliable, uh, consumer-ready technology. And so without the demonstration, I, I don't think you'd be able to get there. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, so many people I talk to in the general public, you know, their immediate uh, image is of a burning Zeppelin. <laughs> That's what everyone thinks in this. Uh, Chris, let me ask you, though, uh, even though uh, Levi's very confident of the infrastructure put in, being put in place, we've seen all kinds of public electric charging stations be put in place. And, mm-hmm. and yet EVs, electric cars, electric vehicles, haven't hit that critical point everybody thought they would have by this point. Mm-hmm. So again, can we get enough of an infrastructure out there to enable fuel cell cars? I, I think, yeah, it's, it's possible, but it's um, not going to be uh, driven by just the automotive industry. It's a, it's a, it's a need to collaborate um, with the energy sector and get the, the necessary support to install the infrastructure there um, and, and have a, a larger availability. Um, the, the fleets, the demonstration fleets that are being set up now are, are largely driven by the OEMs themselves and, and bearing the cost of the burden of the infrastructure to allow uh, those, those fleets to occur. And so we have a chicken or eggs situation right now where the, the investment isn't going into mass proliferation because the vehicles don't exist and the vehicles don't exist because there's no consumers that will buy them without the infrastructure to support them. Um, so it has to grow out of a collaborative effort between uh, the automotive industry and uh, the infrastructure side so that it can uh, take hold and start to expand. So I think that's where it's changing in California, right? So last year was a pivotal year for us um, in terms of ABA, where California is dedicating $20 million a year for the construction of up to 100 or over 100 uh, fueling stations. Um, last year, we saw 28 stations being funded, so now the total is around 51 stations. So certainly it's very localized, mm-hmm. but I think once you uh, start off in a community in an area as big as L.A. and Orange County, um, and then with the vehicles like the Tucson, Toyota, and Honda coming into play, I think that's when we'll start to see a little bit more vehicles, consumers getting more confidence in such of the technology, and hopefully, like we said, grows from there. Pretty soon we'll be in the Bay Area, um, Sacramento, San Diego, and there's also a lot of talk in the Northeast, right, where mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of potential for fuel cell technology up there. What do your studies show of what kind of density of refueling stations do you need before the public really becomes comfortable with it? Well, there's actually been a lot of studies done by University of California, Irvine, UC Davis and such. And what they showed is you needed a minimum of 68 stations to provide sufficient density. Now, it wouldn't be throughout the state, but rather be in larger metropolitan areas. With uh, 68 stations, you could support uh, several thousand vehicles. Um, so with 100 stations, that enables to, us to put uh, stations not only where people live, but also connector stations so they can drive to and from North and Southern California. Um, also uh, stations, let's say Santa Barbara, Palm Springs, uh, where people vacation. So I think with 100 stations, you'll see that there will probably be enough redundancy in the network so that if people, let's say their primary station goes down, they have more than enough options available to them. Now, I would imagine that's true for early adopters who will easily drive out of their way to go to a refueling station or even an EV charging station. They'll do it. 
the general public, I get the idea, is not going to be putting up with having to go out of their way to refuel. That's, that's true, I think. And certainly there are a lot of early adopters very interested in the technology being the first out there, first mover. Uh, but surprisingly, there are a lot of people who are uh, purchasing or leasing our vehicle who wouldn't fit the, you know, the, the mold of an early adopter. They're actually looking at it from a cost savings. Part of our lease is the free fuel, right? So you can fuel uh, your vehicle as part of the lease. Don't worry about it. And what we're finding is a lot of these consumers um, actually aren't as turned off by the station situation. There's a learning period, granted. There's a learning period. And uh, I think once people understand what's going on and the, the nuances of where the stations are, uh, they get adjusted to it. But certainly once there's sufficient number of stations and that's where we're headed, uh, I think it'll alleviate a lot of those concerns for many consumers. Levi, you, you, you cannot drill a hole in the ground and have hydrogen come bubbling up. You have to manufacture it, and that That's takes right. energy. How much can this country or the world scale up its hydrogen production? And, and really, since you need energy to do it, how green really is this fuel? So, as it turns out, we produce a tremendous amount of hydrogen, not for uh, fuel cell vehicles, but for... Uh, ammonia production, which is used in, in making f fertilizers for uh, food production, uh, refining natural refining uh, crude oil to make it into gasoline. That's a tremendous uh, footprint for hydrogen. Uh, it does cost energy because it doesn't exist as a molecule. It's in other molecules, so you have to sort of take it out. But there, is, there are very green strategies for doing that. If you consider, uh, for example, water electrolysis, you can take solar energy, convert it into electricity, use that to drive electrolysis, make hydrogen and oxygen. The oxygen could be used for something as well. And uh, that would be, quote unquote, green. You know, you use a renewable, sustainable uh, natural resource. But if you're using water, is that a good thing? I mean, there's oh, a lot of concern worldwide now yeah, so, on water. You know, with everything, um, uh, if, you, if you are not careful about how it's done, you could create problems. But of course, we have an opportunity now at the early stages to consider water management. Uh, there are tremendous issues related to water if we start creating more associated with using water to produce hydrogen. It, it, that's, that's a, no, a non-starter. So uh, at this early stage, we can start looking at that water, energy, the water, food, all of these nexus, nexuses, I guess. Uh, you can start considering those. And this is the perfect time. I mean, we have all of these challenges. Let's try to figure out how to address all of them, more or less at the same time. Also, if I can add, yeah, do. in terms of uh, renewable hydrogen, actually right across the street from Hyundai's headquarters in uh, Fountain Valley, there's what we call the OS OCSD station, which is Orange County Sanitation District. And what they actually do is they take yeah. sewage and use a tri-generation fuel cell to produce heat, electricity, and hydrogen. And in fact, most of the vehicles that we have are fueled by this biogas, which is basically comes from sewage. So there's a, you know, um, electrolysis is not the only, you know, uh, direction for renewable hydrogen, but there are multiple pathways. And especially with uh, sewage and uh, biogas, you know, we know it's going to be around. And so there's an opportunity to produce a lot of hydrogen through that uh, means. I love the idea of making fuel out of garbage. Chris, how do you see it? I think there's uh, there's opportunity. I think you know when we talk about some of the technology challenges, um, the product development side, we we can see a trajectory towards uh, sustainability on the on the hardware and and getting that proliferation. On the infrastructure side, it's now about taking these challenges and developing the technology that will support the various sources. Um, so from an engineering challenge standpoint, 
it's uh, it's looking at what is the sustainable solution and and getting that uh, development uh, track in place and getting the reliability robustness. I mean, Gil mentioned uh, the hundred stations because if one goes down, there's a it's a reliability issue. You know, you don't have gas stations going down right now because there's you know it's tried and true. It's a commodity. We need to get to that level of maturity in the in the hydrogen space as well, so that it's not uh, a product that's being tested in the consumer's hands. That it's something that's uh, ruggedized and, and ready for any type of environmental conditions. These are things that are going to only come out of the the fleets that can expand and get the volumes there to support the investment into that infrastructure. Chris, well, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. One of the really interesting things about hydrogen, because it is in so many other things you're not dependent on one source. So right now for gasoline, we're dependent largely on petroleum. If we were to use hydrogen, you could get, you could get it from petroleum, you get it from natural gas, both of which are fossil fuels. You could use water, you could use uh, um, municipal waste. There are all of these other resources that you can use to get that same. Then you'll start to see competition. Whoever has the lowest cost product is probably going to win. And so, uh, that competition, I think, will drive the cost down. That's a good point of competition, uh, whoever comes up with the lowest cost. So, Chris, let me go back to you on this. Elon Musk poo-poos the idea of fuel cells. He calls them fool cells. And as you know, he's building this giant gigafactory to make batteries. What if all of a sudden he gets this breakthrough and the cost of batteries drops dramatically? How might that affect fuel cell adoption? I think that, that goes back to the premise that it's all or nothing. And, and from, from my standpoint, I don't see it being an all or nothing strategy. You know, fuel cells as a subsystem, as a, an energy generating device on the vehicle as a subsystem, but not necessarily the main propulsion, is also a viable solution. Uh, so I think from, from the standpoint of the technology uh, migration, um, gasoline and diesel are here and are going to be here for, for quite a while. It's how do we get the technology uh, maturity up in the other sectors so that they can start to incrementally support some of the strategic objectives that we have for CAFE in 2025 and the CO2 reduction initiatives um, because it's not a silver bullet. It's, you know, every study that you see from the EPA and all of the industry, it's going to create, it's going to be driven by a need for all the technologies coming together to solve the problem. It's not an exclusive either or. Yeah, so, I mean, certainly one could argue that Elon Musk has a vested interest in seeing fuel cells not succeed. Yes, he does. But um, I agree. I mean, it has to be kind of an all, all of the above kind of solution. Um, battery electric vehicles will certainly improve over time, I think. But there's always going to be a certain population who either doesn't have a place to plug in at home or at work, who maybe has driving range issues that are, you know, exceed what a, what a um, battery electric can provide. Or maybe their family makeup requires them to have a bigger vehicle, right? That, as we know, battery electrics are kind of limited to smaller size uh, platforms. And that's why we think that fuel cell technology is quite compatible with battery electric technology, right? For scalability of a fuel cell, the fact that you can have the long range, the fact that you can fuel very quickly, means that consumers don't have to compromise their regular driving behavior. Um, but, you know, I think both can coexist along with plug-in, plug-in vehicles and hybrids. Gil, it seems to me that uh, automakers are more and more placing their bets on hydrogen fuel cells. Toyota especially has mm-hmm. committed to that. 
Uh, now Hyundai, of course, has its own vehicle. Uh, Honda just showed and has been leasing its vehicle, which, by the way, is a GM design fuel stack. So there's all this um, collaboration going on amongst automakers. I guess where I, what I'm leading at in this is, when do you think the day might come where automakers can make these available to consumers and actually make a profit on them? Because we talk about sustainability from an environmental standpoint, we got to talk the business case sustainability as well. Well, I think certainly it'll take a number of years just because, like we're saying, the numbers that we're looking at are quite small. Uh, but we've got to go from someplace and from somewhere. Um, it'll be a number of years before I think uh, automakers will see some profitability with fuel cells. But I think, importantly, there is a pathway. There's a, pa a cost reduction pathway for the stack, for a lot of the loading, potentially, I think, also with the tanks. And so, um, unlike with battery electrics, at least from what we've seen, there is no real pathway at this point in terms of the technology breakthrough. Um, so, uh, I think once numbers come up, and of course that is all tied into the infrastructure, um, once we start seeing volumes in the thousands of units, I think that's when we start seeing some uh, potential for at least break-even. Mm -hmm. yeah. Levi, when do you think the, that automakers might be able to make a profit on these cars? Well, I, have, I have no idea, to be <laughs> honest with you. It, you know, just looking at it as a consumer, uh, I have certain constraints um, with regard to what I'm willing to spend. I'm very interested. In fact, uh, if you look at our house, we've done a lot of things to make it a lot more sustainable and renewable. Uh, we look at our automobiles when, when the time is right. I, I don't see it right around the corner necessarily, but you, you sense that it's coming. And there's usually an evolution. You know, I always want to say with regard to batteries and fuel cells, uh, the move to a battery car you know, a car that's primarily uh, driven by battery, it's going to be electrified. A fuel cell car will require that same electrification, and so whatever you learn there will benefit, whatever the battery people learn will benefit the fuel cell people. And of course, you're replacing the, replacing the, uh, the uh, drivetrain. Um, but there's a lot of synergy between the two. And I, you know, maybe we shouldn't think of it as competition necessarily. You know, maybe one, I've seen these charts uh, in particular from GM where they look at, uh, and this may be um, obsolete now because the, the leadership has changed a little bit, but you know, I used to see these charts uh, from gasoline, diesel, to batteries, and then ultimately to fuel cells with this expectation that there is a transition and, and you'll learn something from, uh, from the prior technology and it'll actually benefit the next one. So. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris, uh, same. Same question. When do you think that fuel cell cars might catch on with the public? I think from a, from a cost standpoint, you know, we're, we've gotten to the point where I think we've got a lot of the technology challenges on the, we'll say, the concept and the prototype volumes. But the next hurdle to, to really make, make money in the industry is how do you scale that up into volume manufacturing? And that's another learning curve that's going to end up having to come when there's a, a line of sight to a higher volume market from a consumer basis. When you get to that type of level of technology uh, migration, then, then you're going to start to see you know, the, the value proposition, the business model become viable. Until then, it's an investment to allow for the technology to incubate and, and work out the bugs. I mentioned earlier that we're seeing a lot of collaboration amongst the automakers, far more than we've seen in any other technology. I mentioned GM and Honda working together. I, I want to say Daimler, Nissan, mm -hmm. Ford are working together. We just saw Volkswagen 
buy a part of Ballard, the Canadian company that's been one of the, the, the leaders in this technology for an awful long time. Some people have told me this is going to come down to a patent war. Who owns what patents on it? How do you see that? Definitely we see the, the race for IP protection is, is significant. Um, and, you know, I would say historically there had been a, a perception that the auto industry had done that as a, a means to, to limit competition. You know, going back to, uh, to Tesla, you know, they've come out with the, the let's make it, you know, available to everybody. So there's also a, a philosophical approach uh, in and around some of the, uh, the incubation phase of technology. So technologies that need that, uh, that catalyst I think are going to see more collaboration because the capital investment required to do the research and development is is cost prohibitive for companies and their and their bottom line. So I think in these areas of new technology and, and growth, you're going to start to see more of this this collaboration until it can become commodity, and then you know it's it's more of a a manufacturing and volume driven uh, value equation. Yep. Gil, we're getting down towards the end here, but is Hyundai going it alone? Do you have a partner? How do you see this whole patent war thing? Uh, rolling out? Uh, I mean, there's certainly some discussions going on, which I really can't talk about, but um, I think there's room for a lot of players in this area. And I think part of the reason why you're seeing the collaboration is because OEMs do believe in the technology and they do want to see it succeed. Uh, later down the line, when we actually get into volumes um, and we start to see more of a traditional type of competitive landscape, I think that's where we're going to uh, see some of this um, kumbaya kind of go away if you will but for now i think there's vested interest in everyone to kind of hope and, and see this technology succeed levi we, we are getting down to the end here now mm-hmm. your thoughts on that this collaboration and maybe people staking out who owns what ip uh, you know we're i'm from an academic institution collaboration is sort of in our blood and it's part of the reason why we can make the great advances you have someone that's uh, knowledgeable about one thing someone knowledgeable about another thing, you start bringing the, the pieces together, you can make uh, more than just the sum of the parts. And I think that's exactly what they're trying to do. You know, I can't tell you exactly, but my thought is that if you could find ways to collaborate, you'll probably get there a lot faster, and I think the consumer would benefit mm-hmm. from that. And that's a great point to end up this discussion with. I want to thank all three of you for having come on today's show. Chris Hennessy, the Vice President of Engineering at IAV Automotive, Professor Levi Thompson at the College of Engineering with the University of Michigan, and Gil Castillo, the Senior Group Manager for Alternative Vehicle and Advanced Vehicle Strategy at Hyundai. Thank you all for coming on today. And of course, I want to thank all of you for having tuned in. Underwriting for Auto Line this week has been provided by... (laughs) Cars always capture our imagination what they look like how they move and the places they take us and because you've always loved them you deserve to love the experience of buying them <laughs> 